Thank you very much, choir. It was a lovely anthem, uh, very relevant to kind of my reflections today. I mean, I've been up here a lot of times, often to crack jokes and stuff, but it's a very different feeling uh, being up here to preach my first service in front of the uh, English ministry congregation. I never thought I could hear my own heartbeat, but <laughs> nonetheless, it's all good. Um, I mean, it's been almost a year uh, since I entered uh, kind of ministry and been here. It's been such a blessing, uh, such a loving, nurturing community, uh, support from my own family. Um, I'm just incredibly blessed. Um, so thank you, St. Timothy, and uh, such a privilege to be up here. Um, as I was preparing uh, the sermon, I realized I was struggling with it, grappling with it, and I realized, man, writing a sermon is hard work. You know, it's a lot of... Uh, struggle and wrestling that goes with it. So I came to really appreciate the work that our ministers do on a weekly and week out basis, Reverend Kim, every week with insights to, to share and whatnot. So I think, you know, we should show our appreciation for Reverend Kim every week. Thank you. And so uh, I appreciate the grace and hospitality here too. So let us uh, hear the word of, word of God today. It's a fairly long passage, but uh, it's a story. So hopefully you can follow along. Just really, let's try to imagine what's happening in this, uh, in this story as we read. Okay? So today's uh, scripture passage is taken from John chapter 9, verses 1 to 38. As he walked along, this is Jesus, he saw a man blind from birth. His di disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, Neither this man nor his parents sinned. He was born blind so that God's works might be revealed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had said this, he spat on the ground and made mud with the saliva and spread the mud on the man's eyes, saying to him, Go, Wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. Then he went and washed and came back able to see. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar began to ask, Is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some were saying, It is he. Others were saying, No, but it is someone like him. He kept saying, I am the man. But they kept asking him, Then how are your eyes open? He answered, The man called Jesus made mud, spread it on my eyes, and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. Then I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now, it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. Then the Pharisees also began to ask him how he had received the sight. He said to them, he put mud on my eyes, then I washed, and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not observe the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who's a sinner perform such signs? And they were divided. So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him? It was your eyes he opened. He said, He is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received a sight until they called the parents of the man who had received a sight and asked them, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but we do not know how it is that he now sees, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he's of age, he will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that anyone who confessed Jesus to be the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. Therefore his parents said, he is of age, ask him. 
So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind, and they said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, I do not know whether he is a sinner. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, Yo, oh, sorry, I had to add that. <laughs> I told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? Then they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, Here is an astonishing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but he does listen to one who worships him and obeys his will. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, You were born entirely in sins, and are you trying to teach us? And they drove him out. Jesus heard that they had driven him out, and when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir? Tell me, so that I may believe him in him. Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and the one speaking with you is he. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. This is, is the word of the Lord. And I hope you enjoyed a little animated reading, but it's a long story, so we had to. <clears throat> so, what does it mean to live a good life? I mean, at the end of the day, when it comes down to it, we don't just want to exist but we all want to look back, right, and say, yeah, I've lived a good life. So what does that mean? Is it about creating circumstances that um, society and the people around us consider as good? Or is a good life something that's beyond our circumstances? And you know what? Who decides what a good life is and who gets to experience it? So when we read today's story... You know, the actual healing of the blind man, it takes up only a small part of this story. The bulk of the story is about the man's conflict with his neighbors and the authorities. And as I read, read it over and over, I began to see that what lay at the heart of these, these conflicts, it's a power struggle about who could define what it means to live a good life and who gets to live it. In Jesus' time, living a good life as a Jewish person meant to live in a right relationship with God and as part of the people of God. Being in a right, right relationship with God meant making sure that sin is removed from your life. Right? That's why there was rituals to atone and get rid of that sin. But blindness, you know, one was born blind because of sin. So there's no cure for blindness. It was a permanent fact. You live with this for the rest of your life. So therefore, being blind meant that sin was a permanent part of who you were. Right? So that meant that you could never be a part of God's people, and you had to be permanently separated from God and his people. So that's why the blind man had to sit and beg on the periphery and the margins of his community. So according to the prevailing beliefs of his community... He could never live a good life. But then Jesus comes and turns his prevailing view of blindness on its head. 
the verse, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but rather he was born blind so that God's works might be revealed in him. So that God's works might be revealed in him. So what is this? Jesus provides a radical new interpretation of the man's circumstance. He's not blind because of sin. So maybe this means that he could live a good life after all. It also means that he no longer needs to be separated from his people. Sin, because sin is no longer a permanent part of who he is. But you know what? Those around him, they couldn't accept this new interpretation. They couldn't get out of their old mindset. To his neighbors, this man was a sinner. It's the only way they knew him, and it's the only way they can envision him. Right? And so they try to bring him to the authorities who define and interpret what a good life is. You see, the Pharisees, they are the ones who define for the community what it means to live a good life and who gets to live it. So they say that being born blind means because you're born with sin. But this mere presence of this man, he's a, he's a contradiction. Right? He poses a threat to this belief. Right? His mere presence threatens their very legitimacy and credibility. If the Pharisees are wrong about this belief, can't they be wrong then about other definitions of what a good life is? And so they question this man, right? And they're trying to get him to change his story. But this guy is no shrinking violet, right? So when he refuses to comply, their true views come out, and they exercise their power to get rid of this threat. So they answered him, you were born entirely in sins, and are you trying to teach us? And they drove him out. So as I reflected on what it means to live a good life, you know, I started to realize just how much our definition of a good life is defined by others, and it's also so deeply connected with how accepted we are by others. You know, to survive in our society these days, we need to be acceptable, you know, to the people and the organizations that, like, pay our bills, that hire us. Being accepted by them requires various things, right? Some requires, like, good transcript, good grades, good job experience, the right connections, the right background. You know, we live in a fiercely competitive and world and society. And I can see this at play intensely in our young people. You know, as I've been blessed to serve the high C and the young adults, you know, in our high C, I, I see so much, I feel so much pressure, you know, to take the right courses, to get those good grades, to get the right awards and uh, make good impressions. And then this pressure continues on into university. You know, I know for a lot of our college group folks, welcome back, guys. It's good to see all you guys. Uh, especially for those who finished first year. I had some conversations and, right, never have you experienced such a workload and uh, intensity and studying for exams and all that, right? Well, welcome to the rest of your life. <laughs> Not to scare you, but... But right, it, it's endless. And then as a young adult, uh, now it's time to establish a career, right? And like figure out, plant some like deep roots and like uh, make sure that you're marketable and like that your job doesn't become obsolete. And then once we start popping out our babies, the worries shift to the next generation. How are they going to survive and thrive in this, in this competitive society that we live in? So without realizing it, We've come to define a good life as our ability to survive and thrive in this 
economic and social system that we live in. And don't get me wrong, I mean, yeah, we need to survive, right? We need to function. So we can't be naive about that. But I ask myself, is surviving and thriving in our economic system what defines me as a human being? Are we simply cogs in a machine that can spit us out any day? Is the meaning of my existence simply just to exist and survive in this system? And then we have the expectations of those around us. Our families, our cultures, our societies define what it means to be a good son, a good daughter, good husband, wife, mother, father. Meeting these definitions is also what it means to live a good life. A good number of us saw our parents struggle to establish a foothold here in Canada. We saw their struggles, their lack of respect from others, their sacrifices. The expectations placed on us and that we placed on ourselves was to validate a lot of these sacrifices, right? The way to do that was to thrive in our economic system. So we made these things the purpose and drive of our existence for a good number of us. But what happens to us when our lives revolve around survival and meeting the expectations of others? Thought about this. First, you know, our sense of well-being becomes very dependent on our circumstances. We work so hard to create circumstances that are considered to be part of this good life. If we don't achieve those circumstances, then we either work harder and harder, or we just become resigned to living a life that's not as good as it should be. If we have achieved circumstances that are considered as good, we have to work harder and harder just to maintain it. So as I thought, the underlying emotion behind our thoughts, our choices, our actions, is fear, insecurity. We fear not living this good life that others have defined for us and that we have uncritically accepted as a good life. But here's the thing, my friends. The longer we go on living in fear, so fear of not living the good life, we start to lose touch with ourselves and who we actually are. We kind of become numb. And we become numb because we haven't defined for ourselves what a good life really means to me. And so while I'm trying to live out the definition of good life that someone else has laid out, it's not really authentic to who I am, right? I don't have personal ownership of this good life because it's not something I've created. I'm just trying to live a definition that others have created for me. But then, if I let go of this definition of the good life, what is it? What do we have to hold on to? So this blind man, for all of his life, he was told that he was born with sin. He could never live the good life. He was separated from his community. He could have been resigned to his fate and even been very angry and resentful, right? But then he heard a voice this guy, Jesus, right, offering a new possibility and a new way of looking at his circumstances. And here, against all odds, he began to believe in the possibility of a new reality. He began to think to himself, 
you know what? Maybe I am more than just one born in sin. Maybe there is hope for a good life. Maybe I am not predestined to live out my days separated from God and my community. Maybe, just maybe, my life has some worth after all. This belief in new possibility began his journey. So here's the thing, though. He had no idea at first who Jesus was. He didn't have some big religious experience that cured his blindness. He simply allowed this stranger to touch his eyes, and when he told him to go wash, he just did it. When his neighbors first asked him how he received the sight, he simply said, this man, Jesus. So when they asked him where he was, he didn't even know. But then uh, as the man becomes more confident in, this, in a new definition maybe of a good life, his knowledge of Jesus starts to grow. When the Pharisees first asked him who he thought Jesus was, he responded, he's a prophet. Later on, when he's interrogated a second time, he declares that Jesus is from God. So the funny thing, though, is like Jesus was not physically present throughout this whole story. He was there at the beginning and then at the very end. But then the very end, this new reality, it wasn't necessarily a happy ending, right? In the end, he's driven out from his community. But it was here, alone, rejected, where Jesus appears again. Jesus seeks out this guy, finds him, and reveals his true identity to the man. And at this point, when the man has come to grips with who he is and a new reality, he sees Jesus face to face, confesses his belief in him, and worships him as Lord. The man has lost everything, it seems, but he's found real life in Jesus. You know, in church, we often think that we need to have this great relationship with God or have this great religious experience to begin a faith journey. So it's something out there. It's not accessible to me. But today's story teaches us that the faith journey really begins with just a belief in new possibility. We all know Martin Luther King Jr., this guy. He helped uh, lead a movement that transformed America and much of the world. At the beginning of this movement, things looked really bleak, right? Although they were 100 years removed from slavery, their living conditions were still grim and very oppressive. And the whole system was stacked against them. But, but there was a deep yearning for a new possibility. So on the very first speech he made as a leader, when he was um, appointed to lead uh, what's called the Montgomery Bus Boycott, he said this in his speech. I mean, I can't say it in his baritone, so I can't do justice, but here it is, right? And you know, my friends, there comes a time when people get tired of being trampled over by the iron feet of oppression. There comes a time, my friends, when people get tired of being plunged across the abyss of humiliation where they experience the bleakness of nagging despair. There comes a time when people get tired of being pushed out of the glittering sunlight of life's July and left standing amid the piercing chill of an alpine November. There comes a time, we are here, we are here this evening because we're tired now. And thus began one of the greatest movements the world has ever seen. To really begin our faith journey, we need to come to grips with ourselves and say that we're tired. I'm tired of being defined by my circumstances. I'm tired of letting others define who I am. 
I'm tired of allowing others to define for me what a good life is. I am more than my circumstances. I have the power to define what a good life is, and I have the authority to live that good life. Our faith journey begins with the protest against the beliefs that limit and numb us. It begins with the belief in this new possibility. In the beginning, just like the blind man, we don't see clear God clearly or know much about God. But somehow, we hear a voice leading us to question the things that have defined me. This is the gentle voice of God. And when we hear and heed this voice, God starts to give us the courage to define for ourselves what a good life is. Jesus explained the ultimate purpose of the story in the next chapter. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. So having life. It starts with seeing ourselves as who we really are. Think about it. Each of us in this room, we're so different and so unique. We've all had our own life experiences and things that have shaped that. I mean, how beautiful is that? We're not machines built on an assembly line that's identical to one another, but we are individuals with our own thoughts, imaginations, hopes, and dreams. Somewhere along the way, we've forgotten that. You know, loving ourselves is perhaps the most difficult thing to do in this world because we're never measuring up against the standards laid out for us. But when we begin with the belief in a new possibility, then God opens our eyes and brings us closer to who we are and face-to-face -face with God, our Maker. My friends, God desires us to live life abundantly. This abundance is not a material or circumstantial abundance. It is an inner abundance that springs forth from our awareness of this new possibility and new reality of what a good life is. With this abundance, we start to realize that we're not limited by our circumstances, nor by what others have defined uh, for us. Our abundance comes from the awareness that I am uniquely and beautifully created by God, who knows me intimately and who loves me so dearly. He fashioned me from the womb, fearfully and wonderfully. It comes from the new awareness that I am precious, special, and have enormous value and worth in the eyes of my God, no matter what my circumstances or how well I meet the expectation of others. This, my friends, is what life is meant to be, and what an abundant life that is. So may God bless all of us today, and may God open our eyes to a new possibility and new reality of a life lived with abundance. Amen. Let us sing together.